Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Today, Victor Crittenden delves into the DC Metro parkour community, explaining what it is, who is involved, and why it is unique. He discusses the various definitions, ethos, and approaches to parkour, and how each shows an important piece of the parkour puzzle. Vic shares his thoughts around the governance of parkour and finishes with the importance of collecting and analyzing data and statistics about parkour to help promote its future and growth. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Good morning, I'm Victor Crittenden. Victor Crittenden is a supply chain software architect as well as an active member of the DC Metro parkour community. He works to connect communities and organizations, which is how he became part of PK Move. Victor's interested in investigating what parkour is and then using that knowledge to build infrastructure promoting its growth. Welcome, Vic. Thank you. Welcome to Alexandria, Virginia. Thank you. Let's dive right into, first of all, just because I don't think it's obvious to everyone, what exactly is a software supply chain architect, just so people know what your skill set is. Right. There's a lot of names for it. I think the the general term that you'll hear out in the industry industry is uh, DevOps or the DevOps architect, DevOps engineer, development operations. And what we do is we marry up the development cycles for folks that are writing code to the deployment cycles, folks that deploy code. Mm-hmm. So what that means is if, say, you're on Facebook and there's an issue, something that you notice as a user, it means that a developer somewhere in one of Facebook's offices can quickly push a fix to that. In, in, real, in almost real time. In, in the early days, in the 90s, 80s, and before, it would take weeks, maybe months, to get that kind of fix out. So what we do is we decrease the lead time to deployments for software projects. Okay. So now working from there, my question is, all right, your passion is in using that uh, particular skill set, and your, your passion is in using that to build communities and infrastructure. So the first thing that comes to mind is, can you unpack, there's a DC Metro community and you did a lot of work to sort of, I don't want to say bring it together, like to unify it, but you did a lot of work to organize it and get the pieces working together. That's right. We tried to keep it going. Uh, the, the DC Metro community is one of the oldest communities in the States. Um, the, the, as you know, American parkour is right across the river here. And they've been getting together and doing their jams and doing their meetups for, for more than a decade, decade and a half or so. And as folks get older, as people move out into the world, the, the core community starts to decrease. So what, we, what we've done is we've ensured that all of the siloed portions of the community stayed active and communicating so that we could always make sure that there was a jam, make sure that there was a meeting. And that would mean that you would always have an opportunity to grow. So all we're doing is ensuring that the, the, the community does not, does not attenuate down to zero. So what is the DC Parkour Metro community? Like who are the components and what, what's going on there? So what are the com- components of the DC Metro parkour community? Uh, DC Metro is a very large area. It, it, it encompasses Maryland, Virginia, and DC. It's mostly, uh, we, we, we could say that it goes as far down as Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. and it goes as far north as some has said, you know, why not include Ann Arbor? Why not include Baltimore? Someone's saying, let's just stop around Silver Spring, right? Because right? <laughs> it's just too big. Um, but even even though you have this very large geographical area, all these cities are connected, right? We have Arlington, Alexandria, Fairfax, Burke, D.C., Maryland, Fredericksburg. So all of these cities together, we've even though you have this many, I think Mark Turok has explained it as the jam that we run every week is the largest gathering weekly of the metro of the parkour community in our area, and it's about 
six to ten people. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you a perspective. Although I have all these giant, all these connected cities, I don't have a lot of population. So we've we've tried to group them together, not to just show up the numbers, but to also make it so that we're all connected and com- and continuously integrating, mm-hmm. so that we can make sure that the activity doesn't decrease. And that that community is basically made out of the following groups, the following core groups. There's the DC Metro Park or community, <laughs> which is one of the small groups under the DC Metro you know, parkour right. collective that is mostly Alexandria, Arlington, the Fairfax areas. There's a Mason parkour community at George Mason University over in Fairfax, one of the most beautiful obstacle rich campuses yeah. in, in Virginia, <laughs> next to Virginia Tech, right? But but this is a beautiful campus. There is the College Park, uh, U- University of Maryland College Park community in College Park, Maryland, uh, right across the river, 10 miles, 15 miles up. There is the D.C. area women's group, who's hosting the North American Women's Gathering this, this year. This year, right. Yep. So th- that's that's the core components of the community. And then you also have the gyms, right? So you have Urban Evolution over in Virginia, in the Sterling side, and in Alexandria side. Love, lovely facility, great curriculum, great people. And then our American Parkour, of course, ABK, like Primal Fitness across the river at M Street in D.C. And one of the, the latest organizations, PK Move. Mm-hmm. PK Move is a, an organization that's unlike any other, almost in the United States. But, and that, that's one that we've supported heavily because of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's an organization to bring the adaptive portion of parkour so that it's inclusive to all populations. Mm-hmm. So it's a segue to complete, I guess, complete inclusion of all of the different cultures that we have in the United States. So elderly people on the spectrum, people with disabilities, that, that that organization helped bring DC Metro Parkour out of the silo. It seems like you have these individual silos and they're in their individual park, individual spaces, and that you're trying um, trying to work to bring them to build bridges. So we talked a lot about infrastructure building, and I'm just like seeing the, how that evolved out of these pieces that you see. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's the, that's the anatomy of the DC Metro Parkour. Where I'm heading here, Victor, is to talk about your ideas about what actually is parkour. So can you maybe give me um, some insight into how the different parkour communities here in the metro area, how these different parkour communities seem to have their different philosophies? Yeah, that was really interesting to run into. I didn't even expect it. I figured, oh, just parkour people would be the same people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not. So when I started up here, when I moved up to Northern Virginia, the first outlet that I worked with was Urban Evolution. And they have one of the the most rigorous and detailed level up systems I'd, mm-hmm. I'd witnessed, right? And they, that I think their practice is one of the most lucrative looking kind of practices because they okay. they've pulled it in to where they can tap into the families of Northern Virginia, one of the most affluent areas in the in the United States. And that that kind of style, when I was teaching there, it was a lot of kids, it was a lot of birthday parties, a lot of stuff like that. But it was a big community, it was a big family. Really, mm-hmm. and that that style of parkour though is definitely. I think what stays true to it is there is a quote on one of the walls. It says, "You don't stop playing because you get old. You get old because you stop playing." And it's a very good way approach to the practice. But this approach is not always shared across all other industries, right? All other 
I'm sorry, not industries, but the entities inside of the parkour industry. Right, right. Now, that's the that's the place where we started learning. That's where we started really refining our skills. And when we branched out to other organizations like, like PK Move, we took some of that basic philosophy. Now, if you look across the river at APK, you'll see the same thing, right? But there's a difference in how they've approached it. And Mark told me this when he was reading through Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you're, yep. you've read into the, yep. the, 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 the It's great, great books like Malcolm, uh, Tipping Gladwell's Point. Right. Yeah. If you look at Tipping Point and the, the, <laughs> now we're both going to like uh, right. the other one is um, Outliers. Yes. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Yeah. Outliers and Tipping Point. Yeah, very good books. <laughs> um, and he talks about how he believes that the, one of the tipping points of parkour in America, at least in our culture, is is within the schools, within the school system, and integrating it with their physical education system. And that's when you go to APK, you'll see that it's a much smaller shop, but their reach into the city is even bigger than what UE does with their reach into the cities locally. So that was a difference. That was an approach that was not quite the same. And now if you look over in the DC Metro parkour, parkour communities in DC specifically probably because of travels to Europe, France, working with some of the Vancouver communities, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Toronto community, Montreal community, they were what we call, I think, um, purists. And they didn't go, they didn't show up at the gyms. You didn't even, we didn't even know they were there until you go outside to find them. <laughs> and they're not too big. They don't really participate in that whole, this is a flip. So this is free running that they don't really do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. They have an understanding that I can only find in one place on the Wayback Machine that is described as two theories on parkour. And those two theories I'll get into. But the, the, the underlying piece of why they practice, how they practice, is to reclaim control or to reclaim themselves, their surroundings for the purpose of altruism. Mm-hmm. It's very much in line with what I read through, through the, the Amox interviews with Angel and all of the writings that Damien put out. So mm-hmm. I saw that this was very different than is, is very much be strong to be useful compared to the don't, don't let yourself grow old from the other, the other side. And then there's PK move, which is all of them was all of them for all populations. At least that's the attempt. And it's hard for anybody to do. And that's why they incorporate as a, as a nonprofit to, to work closely with the city. So these these three, almost three different types of philosophies come together is so long as we can stay in communication to share that idea of, of utility and staying, starting together and finishing together. That, I think that is the, that's the point where we can all share it. And that's where we can make sure that the philosophy doesn't deviate too far to the sports side or too far to the, the what I call the religion side mm-hmm. or the philosophy side. So the, the anatomy of the DC Metro Parkour community is is actually quite healthy, I think, because they've figured out ways to to promote it in schools that will help it grow. They figured out ways to tap into the culture and to the businesses here in Northern Virginia, and to include special needs populations like elderly. And I, there's, I would hope that that shows up more in more parkour communities across the United States. You obviously developed that understanding of the different philosophies and and like this point of view, you obviously developed that over time. And I'm wondering, can you point to something or do you recall something that set you on that journey? Like, was there a point where you realized, wait, there's more here than what I thought was here. And then that led you to that discovery. Or like, can you just take me back and like open up some of that, um, what drove you to do that? 
there it's actually continuous and i, I don't want to say there's no silver bullets because there is you know in studies in physics there's tons right. of silver bullets there's, <laughs> there's all kinds of ways to leverage very large objects and i can break it down to a couple cases one was at urban evolution and i was teaching what they call the 401 pk class mm-hmm. and the 401 pk class is a play on words, right? You're saving up for your right, retirement. Right, the right? 401 k retirement. Yeah, it's a beautiful class, beautiful design. You know, very big, big shout out to Salil and Sean for making that. <laughs> and I was teaching this class, and we had this student, and Sean mostly took most of the. He he really transformed the student. She was she came in to bring her son in, and when we saw her, she was standing by the stairs, and she was one of those big, big folks, right, so four hundred pounds or so, and she was just standing over by the stairs on one of the the bottom steps, and she was afraid to come off a step <laughs> and then Sean's you can come out and play if you want and he, she says oh no I don't I don't even like to go in my basement because the steps are scary so she took us up on it and she started training and then she started training and she started training more and I watched this lady cut in half right, right. she went from <laughs> 400 200 and some pounds too and it was it was I've never seen anything like that and I, and, I, and I had the pleasure of teaching her but when when she lost that weight her personality and creativity busted out in all directions. She was almost impossible to control in class. <laughs> you would become a problem child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost basically a problem. And and that was one of the first times I saw I said this 35 cuz 401pk was a 35 year old and up. Mm-hmm. Right? We could, we I don't we we went above 55 but usually the, that kind of population doesn't resonate well with the gym. Yeah, they won't the, even come into the gym. Yeah, the colors, the lights, the sounds of kids it's just not that's not their scene. So they're not gonna mess with that. They will come and drop their kids off. They'll sit in the lobby. Yeah, but or watch, not, maybe watch their grandkids take a class if right. there's something going on. Get special. upstairs and look over the railing and watch it, right? But they're not gonna participate. And only a small percentage would. And, and that small percentage actually they work us into the ground. Right? Like they're <laughs> strong people. So I saw this and I said, "Oh, this this can be unlocked in every direction possible." And then I realized. That Sean and Nancy and Jean and Rosie were working on a project mm. to do that. And they first, I think they started with the cancer populations, cancer survivors. Um, because I think you talked with Nancy mm-hmm. about her diagnosis. And she was in our classes too. And I didn't even realize she was sick because she was coming to class while she was going through her treatments. And she she made it through that and they created a program so they can bring parkour to those folks. And I think they mostly started going into the direction of what we call silver, which is the elderly populations. And through this, I saw that there is a term, there has to be a way to make parkour adaptive, and there has to be a way to make it inclusive for all of the communities that already exist. Mm -hmm. The sport even could move seamlessly back and forth from a a high-level competition sport all the way back to a low-impact yeah, reclamation of one's fall right. prevention, reclamation of oneself, right? So there, there's this, this continuous this uh, dichotomy that was between them. There was a space that you could move in between them, and I thought this is unlike any other sport. Like I mean, it's, it's not not common to see that in a ballistic <laughs> sport, right? 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 So this, I thought that was I thought that was strange, and and I, that was one of the first things that kicked me into thinking that low impact parkour is the way to include it all across the country. And then another thing that, that that caught my attention was in 2016 or so, not even too long ago, I was training with a, an individual, his name was An, and he was from the DC Metro Parkour community. He's one of the originals 
that would train out in Rosslyn Gateway Park. We have a meetup, rain or shine, snow, anything goes wrong. We're still out there. Freeze. One day it was seven degrees out there and we're still out there. The wind's blowing, freezing, but we're still out there. We have been able to keep that going, that meetup going for about, you know, 10, 12 years or so. Every Wednesday, 6 p.m. out at Rosslyn Gateway Park. And I'm talking to Ron and he's, you know, he's a, he's a master in fine arts. And I'm, I won't say he's epitome of a purist. There's other ones out there right, that right. just won't go in a gym at all. But he, he really had a definition of parkour that I had not seen anyone else make. And I posted this up on the parkour research page a few years ago. And it was, I found it on the Wayback Machine. He led me to it, right? So right. who's, who's going to go out the Wayback Machine and find these things? <laughs> well, and how would you find it? I mean, the Wayback Machine is great, but like that makes the space even bigger. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like a really easy search function on there. <laughs> no. So I couldn't really find You have to know the website and then you yeah. got to look through it. So on the North American Parkour Forums, I think, and I think you've, you've worked around on that yeah. thing a lot. I found an article that he published there, 2000, I don't know, <laughs> 2008, 2009, something like that. And it's called Two Theories on Parkour. And he breaks it down in the following. He says that, ignoring most of the backdrop, he says there's two theories. There's a theory of application and a theory of practice. There's there's a definition of a thing, and there's how this thing is applied and how you practice that application. And in his theory of application, he covers pretty much everything that I could think of that parkour was useful for. Mm-hmm. He says that there's three components to the theory of a- application. It's a utilitarian altru- practice of altruism. So you're doing this for the greater good. You are reclaiming yourself. So it's self-reclamation. So you're getting strong to use and get in tone with your body. And then you're reclaiming the environment and surroundings around you. Those three pieces. So to put it qu- succinctly, it's a practice of reclaiming oneself and one's surroundings for the purpose of altruism. And the way he would say it is he says using the human body as a force for altruism. That was the application, his theory of application for parkour. And in a theory of practice, he goes through all the ways like coaching, gaming, uh, competition, sport, all these, all these other ways you can practice that application. And that was the first time I seen an academic approach to the definition of parkour. So that if you can understand self-reclamation, environment reclamation for the purposes of altruism, those are the basics that we found were the, the connections between all of those silos. In right. DC so then something you, after you read that, then you see it in all those communities? Or? Yeah. Yeah. All the communities, even the DC area women's. And I'm c- kind of grouping the communities as one thing. Was the, the, you know, the Mason Parkour, UC, UCMP, um, and... UMCP, sorry, I always get this wrong. And uh, the DC Metro Parkour, greater community, DC area women's, they all had that. The new, the Leave No Trace Jam is all built into reclaiming the environment, right. seeing that table and realizing I can do more than just sit at it. Right. I can sit on it. I can roll over it. I can jump on <laughs> right. it. There's this, there's this concept of transforming the environment, using your mind to transform the environment and to get strong to be able to do it, to bring it into reality. Doing it for the purpose for others was the key point. That's what we found was so unique at, at PK Move because it did it with a balance at the bottom line of zero. They did it without a profit. So that was, um, I thought that was the most amazing application of parkour theory because it, it lined up completely with the theory of application. 
if we call that a, an insight, this piece of knowledge that you um, discovered or rediscovered, and then you immediately use that as a tool to look at these things that you are already familiar with, and that gives you this new insight. It's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And then you strike me as the kind of guy who just immediately went, and and then you like turned outward or turned around, however you want to put that, and then started working on other projects. So can you tell me a few of the other things that you've done and maybe how that insight has enlightened the work that you've been trying to do? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, UE and PK Move, those are our local projects that we work on. And the DC Metro Parkour community is just like any other community, just making sure that it's alive and, right. and well. On the outside, we were, after finding these things and communicating, I think mostly the medium was through Facebook. And Facebook's not a great way to <laughs> to organize things, but it was a great way to here, run here. into people. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's what we have at the moment. <laughs> it's a good way to run into people. And I, I ran into... Uh, the framers and founders of USPK and working on that design so that they could make a unified, I think what the, the, the name that they, they arrived at was association mm -hmm. and the purists in the parkour community usually call it confederacy. Right. Um, but it, it's a basically a collective of United States communities and gyms to represent at a global scale and at an international scale, United States like a unified voice, a unified voice from the Americas, for at least from 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 the America from, right? from, from USA <laughs> from the least USA. I'm not sure about our involvement with with um with bringing Canada, Canada Mexico, and Mexico. And I'm not sure, but 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 that was uh, in response to I think some things that were going on across overseas with uh, with FIG and 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 fees and trying to who calls what is what is parkour and who claims it and all these things, right? And at the community level, we're not really too worried about that. That doesn't affect us too much, uh, to my understanding. Uh, nothing really affects us except for the weather, um, <laughs> which which at least at Rosling Meetup, that doesn't even affect us. We're just out there in the cold. But in, in, in when we were working towards this, I tried to bring in a few ideas about, about supply chain, right? How do I structure this in a way that it remains profitable enough so that it can continue moving forward. Always thinking about the balance, always thinking about the bottom line, not, you know, physics, but of course, but, but most of it is because if I run, if we run low on cash flow, then we run low on, on yeah, influence. Ability and resources. Yeah. 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 So we have to, have to focus on that. So we looked at, you know, all these different categories is who could be part of these things? How do we vote? And it was essentially the framing of a document that would represent an, uh, an organization or sport in the United States. And a lot of my experience came in, uh, I, I think I had a lot of experience working with Andy Taylor at, at the Philly at Pinnacle Parkour. It was huge input and, and huge support to the community. So Andy Taylor's work is just, is just is almost unparalleled to what he's done for Art of Retreat and for what he's done for the East Coast community. And and what their gym and what their community does. And well, if you go to Philly and you see the riot group, you know, you know, right. okay, this is <laughs> a little too much. But but uh, but they are they are at least they're still together, and right. which is and great. That's just their form of expression. It's that's they, the way they, they are still doing good work. It's mm -hmm. just they choose to express themselves that way, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, as long as they're not hurting anybody or hurting themselves. <laughs> Shout out to Cato and them. <laughs> um, so Andy and I were working on a project called. Uh, YPL or the Youth Parkour League, and what this was supposed to be it was another profit-bearing attempt to bring a sport circuit to the younger populations on the East Coast. 
and they were working to communicate with the different gyms on the East Coast to bring in the sports circuit and have a competition circuit so that it, it looked like SPL. And so the things would you know bubble up and you would have this a formal competition scene at the, at the youth level. And when we were writing that document, I researched every competitive rule book from karate to taekwondo to boxing to climbing. Climbing was one of the most most relatable to parkour. And in doing that, I learned the formats. I learned what kinds of rules, indemnification, how to structure these nonprofits, these kinds of organizations for uh, for sport. And that's what uh, I think helped build USPK in some of that part. I think most of the credit goes to the founders because they did they went and out of their way the hard for work, right? <laughs> all the real hard work, right? And plus, they all have full time jobs, right. working gyms, working communities, working working their own jobs, working their own lives. And uh, we're able to to structure and put together an organization, an actual. I think still in right. the process, but but still put together an actual association for all of the different individuals and communities to fall under in the United States. So that was one of the the, the second projects, right? It's, you know, YPL mm. and USPK being put out into the greater part of the community. You're clearly a passionate person, and you're you're interested in, and I can see your analytical skills, the way you use them and apply them, and that's really born fruit. Uh, and I'm, but I'm one of the questions I have is, so how do you also approach? Um, you can call it work life balance. You can call it you know side projects or passion. And I'm just wondering if you could share some of what you do, sort of. Um, I want to say restorative practice, but I don't mean like foam rolling and, you know, physical restorative. It's like, how do you uh, depressurize from like the work that you, the technical work, the day work you do is difficult and figuring out these types of philosophical principles is difficult. So how do you depressurize and unwind and <laughs> recharge? Poorly. Um, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm known for that 80 hour work week. That's just mm-hmm. normal and <laughs> pretty bad at recovering from it, right? I was sleeping, like last night I said four hours of sleep yeah. kind of thing. It's not very, it's because I've just started so many companies and so many startups and so many, part of so many from nonprofits. Like I, even in parkour, we started trying to work on a nonprofit called Parkoracle to pull together data and analytics from the different gyms and communities to, mm-hmm. to judge and, and, and project the growth of the industry in the midst and the context of the growing sport with at the international scale. That would be, I think that would be very useful to know that kind of data. Right. Because you need that kind of data if you were looking for investors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I'm always kind of poorly balancing work and life. <laughs> but you know, one thing that does help me balance out is when I'm teaching, uh, PK Move is multi-headed, right? So we, we it's a, it's a, or, the organization was built to share the transformative power of parkour with a focus on special needs populations. And I, I teach the silver classes, but we also teach something called PK Schools with a with a, a low income students the ones on title 1 mm-hmm. and there we have a club uh, we have a we're participating in something called the link club and what we do is we go out to this this establishment this low income housing center and we 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 pull our pop well not our pop up but our internal tools we can't use a pop up there but we use our internal yeah, obstacles and all of our stuff boxes and, and, and yeah whatever we have that uh, fits in a car yeah, right whatever fits in Nancy's car really and we 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 teach these uh, these low these low income kids and they're no different than any other kids right all all if y'all have taught any any kids it's just right. wrong. you know they're just running screaming you know have to <laughs> you have to yeah. instantiate order and they get that after a little while and I think the setup and the travel and all that is extremely stressful. But as soon as I can see those kids, they're so happy when we see us. I said, yeah, that's the de- that's the depressure. I can that's, feel it now. It's kind of going down again. 
And I used to get that all the time when I was teaching at, at, at UE. And that kind of environment is much different, right? We're just teaching back-to-back -back classes, right? So you're getting all kinds of populations. But when you get these specific kids, they know you by name. As soon as they can see you, oh, they lose it, you know? And that, and that to me, is, uh, is very fulfilling because they otherwise wouldn't really be able to go to the gym because it's expensive. Yeah, it's cheap, they, but it's expensive for them. Right. So they, they generally don't have the opportunity to, to work that, that stress out. And that that's that's a depressure for itself, but as you can see, that's still part of work, right? So <laughs> I was going to point out that you made a sandwich by putting two stressors yeah. on yeah. either side of the thing that depressurizes you. But yeah. but I guess you know if that's one of the things that you're really passionate about, then you're willing to pay the price on either side. Anything else that you're into? I mean, uh, there are guitars within sight. There oh, are yeah. <laughs> there's guitars all over the house on all three levels, <laughs> at least three on each level. I've been playing guitar since '95 or so, so. It's just, I don't even think about it anymore. It's just something I just get up and just start doing. Mm -hmm. I used to play in bands. I, the, the last band I actually was with was with Andre, right? The, uh, the, the guy that showed the, the two theories on parkour. Mm -hmm. And he moved out to the West Coast. And then the drummer moved down to Florida. And I'm dang, <laughs> I gotta find a new drummer. That's the <laughs> hardest part to find. So, so I got my loop stations and all this. And another uh, member in the community who I was one of the biggest purists I've ever met is uh, Robert Klugerman. And this is a person that you might be heard of on the parkour research yeah, forum. He's very vocal there, but you're not going to see him on videos and in gyms and things like that. And he trains all, he's probably training right now. He trains every day and he plays violin. So we, we, we'll put up the gypsy swing. He'll mm -hmm. come by and put up the violin and I'll pull out the, the Maca Ferry and we'll play. But, you know, I actually don't put too much emphasis on it because it's so normal to play music, to play guitar specifically, that I forget that it's something that people find, oh, that's interesting. Well, I didn't know. Because I always think to myself, oh, you don't play an instrument? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, of course you could play a flute or spoons or something. something. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the guitars, I could say, yes, that's a very big de-stressor because it's so normal and it's such a good feeling that all the pain or anything that you have in your joints, everything actually goes away for some reason. And then I also, then I follow up with Smash Brothers and it all comes back because it's not, <laughs> it's so stressful. I mean, <laughs> you, you, the computer player even beats you so many times these days yeah. that the things getting too smart. I dare not play online because I'm just going to lose every battle and just get stressed out and break a TV. <laughs> Vic, one of the things that I've been trying to keep my eye on is finding things that people can take away from each guest. So some people like to give them, you know, physical challenges, mental challenges. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you'd want to ask of all the people who are listening? So, you know, if you're in the sound of my voice, go do or. Through our research and data, finding all the different gyms that are in the United States, we found three nonprofits and more than 90 plus for-profit entities, sole proprietorships and, and LLCs. What I'm asking is, is it possible and how do you structure an organization in which the members of the organization are the owners? A cooperative, a parkour cooperative, or a park cooperative, right. if you want to say it fast. <laughs> park cooperative. Um, but if, if, is this possible to build without, without losing cash flow mm -hmm. and without losing stability? And what you're looking for is input from others. You're looking for input ideas others, and suggestions yeah. and on a place that we could discuss it and figure it out. Yeah, that's right. A forum and and how can we how can we develop that? Is it possible? Is it useful to develop that? And the only reason I ask is because if you look in the deep philosophies of parkour, you look through all these books, a lot of it seems mostly democracy is a big point, is a big piece. Most LLCs are structured in the opposite way, where the owners, the people that are in charge call the shots. Right. Top down. Top down. 
is there possible to make a community-based organization in the United States that can yield a profit? We tried to do this in the communities and the legal ramifications are more expensive to deal with for community because communities are non, they're non revenue generating. Right. Right. We don't, we don't charge for classes. We, we don't have a facility and we don't intend to. So is it possible to create a gym in which that the gym is a cooperative? Mm -hmm. Now the, we tried to do this with, um, but instead of you, instead of formally structuring, I think the thing that really did help is as we were going through the motions of talking to the city officials, because that's because with PK Move we had so many connections to the city that we found that just the relationship between the parkour communities and the cities for cleanups, for awareness, for just campaigns, just that in itself enabled the the parkour community to be accepted by the by the city at a greater a faster rate than right. we had seen. I was, right. I was talking earlier about the silver bullets. Right. Well, that's one of them. Is if you can maybe and uh, basically I'm asking the question: Can this be structured? And if you can attempt to simply go talk to your city councils on a regular basis, simply re write to them, go get, you know talk to them, participate in the environment right. cleanups, become, become visible and have an effect that they can see. Yeah, that's right. Bring back the leave no trace and be visible about it. Instead of just cleaning it up, go report that you've cleaned it up. Right. Report yeah, to the city water right. cleaning it up. Right. <laughs> right. Get spotted. Right. Right. Communicate back to them. And I think this is a um, this might tell us whether or not a, a cooperative structure in the community is even necessary. It's probably just the FaceTime that works, mm -hmm. but can a cooperative be structured in a, in a gym, in a corporate setting? That would be interesting to see that the members of a parkour community own the parkour establishment. Asking people to talk to you about that sort of a data project, like looking at what's actually going on with the large number of gyms and companies, and could that be formed in a co-op? That, that's like one side, or that's like the outer shell. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if you can talk more about what your maybe ideas are and what you're currently trying to do to figure out, like, okay, that would be like a goal, but like, what are you trying to do to figure out whether that goal is attainable or even should be attempted? Right. Um, so with the, with the data set that we first got of where all the gyms were. So on this data set, it shows you that there's a large amount of gyms in the United States. What we're interested in is how does this move, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is a static piece of data. We don't know when the gyms were created and when they were, if, yeah, if they're still if, going, if, if, they're still still going or if they've or... closed, or maybe we've missed some that were created and closed and not showing up on the map, right? So, cause it's just a flat X, it's just a flat KML. So one of the things that I was looking for is if, if a data project could be set up, what kinds of data would be interesting or useful for the community to know, for the, for the industry to know, so we can judge growth rates. Mm -hmm. How many gyms are closing per year? How many gyms are opening per year? Right. Revenues, demographics. Why, why, did, why? why did that gym, well, why did that gym open there? Like who opened that gym? Are we always opening gyms for a specific set of like, oh, there's only four reasons people open gyms and these three always fail. And this one generally, like those kinds of things, but you'll never know until you dig into the data and we collect the data and then dig into it. That's right. And I think uh, at, uh, with, with Justin at Firestone Freerunning, mm -hmm. he, he, uh, he released the parkour professor mm -hmm. and this is a very good, very good approach to, to getting- Yeah, trying to share. This is what I did and this what, he did. what have you guys been doing? What works? Yes. And I think that's one of the best uh, platforms to do that. And I've also seen another, there's a parkour gym owners page or a group in the United- uh, in, Yeah, in I think it's a group Facebook. on Facebook. Yeah. And somehow I got invited in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And they, they, they hold a meeting every couple of weeks, every week or so, and they, and they all yeah. share data between each other. 
it's more less of a call to action to the communities because communities are outside of the gyms and outside of the profit practice. But if there's a way to consolidate this data and analyze it, what kind of things are we learning? Mm-hmm. Are we learning things about growths? Are we learning things about placements, processes, kinds of personalities? Yeah, what, the, the general public community, like not, not the parkour community, but the people in the public community. Like you put a community of parkour, put a parkour community in this community, it works. Put that same parkour community in this other community, it doesn't work. It'd be great to know that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. There's obvious things like I keep, it, it's hard to have a practice in, in the what we call a suburban wasteland. Mm-hmm. Like a not to call out any cities, but there's areas where there's just homes and, and yards. Right. And that's not, that's all pro- personal property, all right. private property. So that's, that's another problem. But it, is there a, is there some kind of effect of placing these communities or these gyms in the, in the public population, in the bigger population? What is this telling us? What kind of demographics are, are utilizing this service mm-hmm. and utilize, and, and, and becoming a part of the practice? Because I think if you learn that, now you can predict things. And if you can predict the growth, now it's easier for investment. It's easier to say that there's a return. Right. I was going to say, where are you going with all this? And that's that's one really good tool that you could, or one really, really good data point that you could bring to the table. So when you when somebody decides they want to open a gym or start a community, the first problem they have is proving that that's going to be viable. And you know, all the belief in the world doesn't get you a business loan. Like, Yeah. Yeah. The business loan, I mean... That, that you might not get it or you might get it and you can't pay back. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically I'm trying to figure out the ways to, to, to dig shallower holes, mm. right? We always said uh, in, in IT when we're developing in big software systems is to, to try to fail cheap. If you're going to fail, don't, don't yeah. do it in a large scale, right. you know, make a, make a proof of concept, right. make it all the way through. It's a systems thinking <laughs> approach, right. right? I want to build a house. Well, let's start with a sofa, right? Yeah. That kind of resembles a house, right? <laughs> we'll put <laughs> a roof on it later. Let me the color of rug and the walls. Right. <laughs> foundation you're building on a swamp yeah <laughs> no offense to all the alexandrians <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a direct <laughs> right right well, the city's awesome but it's we've everybody's house is leaning a little bit too. <laughs> <laughs> so the data set that we received again the data set that we saw um i think andy taylor put it together and now it's coming to me i think erica madrid was a big part of structuring this map we noticed the 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 high saturation of gyms in the united states we saw low saturation of gyms in the rest of the world. But talking to people like Hedge, John, right. John Hedge Hall, you know, that those communities are very active outside. They don't have the problems of private property that the US has. And I think that's part of why the gym number is increased. I'm not sure. The gym number is increased here in the States. In the States. In, in yeah. like defense or response to that challenge. Right. Because you can't train outside without getting, you know, sometimes you get heat. Right. right. Sometimes you're on private property. So I think it's important to make sure that gyms are treated one way in the data set. Communities are treated one way, but what does it mean? So when I got the map, I tried to add in some older maps that I had uh, from the okay. community. Right. So I took the, there was a map that I think um, his name was Pilo, Pierre Luis uh, Basin. And he was one of the original leaders of the DC Metro Parkour community maybe 10 years ago. And they had this map that they were sharing. And I think this map is actually shared between APK and UE and all these people have these similar spots because the the spots are static. Right. Right. So we took this big gym map of the world and overlaid another layer that has all the spots Mm -hmm. for this, for this location. 
And if you go on Google Maps, you can find spot maps all over oh, the United yeah, States. Yeah. It's awesome because you can go to you can go to Kansas City and go and go through the <laughs> the, right. the map that, that tour, Eric put right? up. Right, and you just do a tour of all the different cities. And so we put ours on there, and then we did another step. We said, now it looks great. It looks convoluted on Google Maps. Google Maps, by the way, is not a great platform for doing this. Where we wish to move to UMap or something right. OSM at some point. But we look at the map. And we see all these different points and they're all blue. We say, okay, now everything looks the same. So now what we do is we'll go through the KML. It's very easy. You go to the, pull yeah. up Vim, change yeah. all the, the Download, numbers, pull it edit, back. Upload, right? Up, yeah, not very through easy. the web interface. <laughs> yeah, not through the web. It's not, it's not easy. It comes back up and now we have all the gems and I'm going to give a color. It's red, right? Now all the gems look red. All the spots are blue, right? So I have two difference. Now I can see visually the difference between the spots and the gems. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, there's a difference between the spots. This spot is blue. And it's on private property. This spot is blue and it's on public property. So let me do another color change. So we did this very tedious process. Oh man, that hurts. <laughs> we and the way we we kind of we kind of figured out a way around this, we went to the Alexandria Gov and Fairfax Gov and we pulled all of the data for the public parks that they have. Oh, and we aligned them that on the <laughs> on top of it, right? <laughs> right. And we turned all the public spots to green. Yeah, the definitely public spots. Definitely public, definitely private. And it's still overwhelming blue on the map, right? Uh -huh. So it's overwhelming blue. There's so many private spots out there that we call, oh, this is a spot. This is a great spot. But did you know you're not supposed to be there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. It, or, or there may be... Um, the local community that trains there infrequently, they may have a relationship with the building owner. Like it, it may be that that's cool, but you're technically on a private, right. private and, space, right? And I think it's fine as long as there's an understanding, but the, the, is that there's this insurance scare that people are kind of uneasy about. And I would be too, if I was a business owner, somebody breaks their leg in front of my business yeah. and somehow managed to sue me. Or as soon as I put like the address of where I got injured, yeah, you know, the, the, they, they go to that person to ask him about the injury. Right. That's, that just doesn't look good. So we, we kind of made a distinguishment between public and private. And then this is what I'm saying is notice there is a large percentage of private property that's beautiful architecture. And then a large percentage of public property that's pretty good architecture, but most of it is, is natural land, mm -hmm. right? So what I'm saying is there is a drop in the usage and production of public properties in cities. Can we prove this? Can we see, can we see this and then communicate to the cities about this? Mm. Is there a reason that these these things are so small? And then I want to know velocity. Are they decreasing? Right. Is public property decreasing? In the in Alexandria, we found uh, that it is. Um, and I, my question to the rest of the community is: What does yours look like? Right. And of course, the final question: three words to describe your practice. Assumption of control. Thank you very much, Victor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This was episode 42. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 42. And there's more to the Movers Mindset project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to sign up for our newsletter, or to join the Movers Mindset community. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.